This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, we speak first with State Representative Gail Tarleton, who is running for Secretary of State. Alongside the governor and the state attorney general, Tarleton has mobilized a response to the Trump administration's sabotage of the United States Postal Service here in the state. We will hear her demands to put a stop to the dismantling of our postal infrastructure. And she also has a list of ways that you can get involved in the fight. Then, if you have been wondering what is at stake in this year's state, congressional, and legislative elections, and about where you should be putting your time and resources, we have a show for that. Join our panel to hear how you can make a real difference here in Washington in 2020. That is all ahead, so stay with us. As most listeners and viewers know, the Trump administration and the GOP have been undertaking a series of moves to undermine the United States Postal Service. In addition to blocking $25 billion in funding that the U.S. Postal Service needs to stay afloat during the pandemic, Trump appointee Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has recently removed thousands of sorting machines and mailboxes in a move that he has called cost-cutting. All of this, of course, threatens our ability to vote by mail during a pandemic. So to talk about the impact that that is having on us here in Washington, we are joined joined by 36th LD Representative Gail Tarleton, who is running for Secretary of State. Representative Tarleton, thank you. It's good to see you. How are you? Good to see you, Stefan, and good to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about one of the most important things happening in our country right now. Well, let's start right there. Let's get your top line response generally to Trump's moves against the Postal Service. It's outrageous. It was outrageous when it started months ago. It's gotten even more outrageous underneath the hack that is in charge of the Postal Service in the United States. And uh, now today we get yet another iteration of how they're trying to suppress the vote, how they are trying to prevent us from carrying out our right to vote. And I am really, really determined that we support our attorney general right now in this lawsuit against the U.S. Postal Service and the Trump administration. I want to get your update on the status of that lawsuit in just a moment, but I'm wondering, can you give us an assessment of the damage that has already been done uh, here in Washington in terms of removing sorting machines, mailboxes, that sort of thing? You know, Stefan, there's a lot of confusion out there. And like any kind of story involving undermining the operations of a huge enterprise like our males, uh, the story keeps unfolding every day. So today, KUOW, for example, said that about 40% of the high-speed mail sorting machines in Washington State, in Seattle, Seattle alone have been removed. Uh, Another report uh, talked about the changes at mail centers in Yakima and Wenatchee and Spokane and Tequila. So we're trying to piece all of this information together literally moment by moment. Do you have an idea of the impact that this could potentially have, uh, not just on our ability to uh, vote, but also on our ability to just receive our mail and a lot of the vital services that come with the mail? This is part of the outrage that there is no accountability to this administration for what they are doing to undermine what has been the lifeline of our ability to get through this pandemic for medicines, social security checks, applications for uh, jobless benefits and getting the paycheck protection uh, funding back to individuals and voting. I mean, we are not talking about stalling just to affect the vote. We're stalling the whole ability of us to work and and survive through this pandemic. It is it is truly outrageous. And I think the damage being done in every state needs to be examined in full. And hopefully this lawsuit will help us expose what's going on. Well, the lawsuit was one of a series of requests and demands that you made at a press conference you convened earlier this week. Can you run down that list for us? Sure. Uh, called on the uh, federal government to uh, and Congress to investigate this postmaster general's operations and undermining our our males, and they are new, now going to do that, right? Mm. Uh, Speaker Pelosi is holding hearings, I think, starting Monday, if I... I'm keeping up with the 
changing schedules, uh, called on the attorney general to say, if you decide there is appropriate legal action to take, that we stand with you. And we called on Secretary of State Wyman to give her full support behind any kind of lawsuit that the attorney general would uh, take. And now the attorney general, uh, the day after the press conference, took that lawsuit. We called on the governor to use the full capacity of his emergency powers to examine how we conduct vote by mail, free, fair, safe, and secure elections, despite what is happening to the Postal Service. And that would include potentially expanding ballot boxes accessible to the critical places where uh, service has been disrupted, uh, to consider uh, extending the election certification date to the extent that he could under emergency powers, to call on the auditors to mail out the ballots earlier than they otherwise would, and to explore whether or not we can help the auditors with funding, election security funding uh, that the state legislature authorized in the budget in 2019 and 2020, uh, $2,196,000 to support conducting elections if there were some kind of security disruption. That's all tremendous and, and very thorough. You have mentioned we, we both sort of uh, billboarded Attorney General Ferguson's lawsuit. Uh, this is a multi-state legal challenge that he is leading. Um, even though Postmaster General DeJoy recently told Speaker Pelosi that he has decided to pause his actions after the election, the AG is continuing with his lawsuit. What can you tell us about the current status of that? Look, we can't trust the Trump administration. We cannot trust this Postmaster General to actually honor whatever it is he's saying from one day to the next. Uh, 13 other states joined with our Attorney General to look into this intentional, willful disruption of our Postal Service, which is an integral part of conducting free and fair elections in this state and in many other states, because it's not just mail-in ballots. It's absentee ballots that are gonna be affected by this. And most of the states that have been trying to accelerate absentee ballot rates are doing that because of the pandemic. So the, this postmaster general said, oh, I'm putting a pause on the changes. But then today there was a report that said, uh, that doesn't mean restoring the mail processing equipment that has been dismantled. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't mean that we're going to restore schedules necessarily. So no one knows. And that's why we need the hearings in Congress to, to ferret out what is the intention and how do we make sure that the Postal Service is not disrupted through this pandemic and through the election season. You know, you mentioned that uh, the current Secretary of State Kim Wyman, you called on her to support the Attorney General's suit. Uh, what has been her response to the situation thus far? She doesn't have a plan. She hasn't had a plan from day one to deal with the disruptions. She doesn't have a plan today. Every single day, new information is emerging. She doesn't have a plan. And without a plan, you are not going to be able to deal with the disruptions and the interference and the uncertainties that we're looking at between now and not just election day, but all of those weeks following when the auditors are going to have to be counting the ballots that are coming in late. So we need to know what the plan is. And that's why we rolled out a plan in a press conference this week with Pramila Jayapal, our Congresswoman from the seventh district and with the Congressman Denny Heck from the 10th district and with our, our King County Executive Dow Constantine. We need a plan and our governor needs a plan and our attorney general is gonna give us the information we need through this lawsuit. If he can proceed with this lawsuit, he can do discovery. We can find out what the plan has to evolve towards in order to make sure we conduct these elections. For her part, the Secretary of State says that she doesn't think that Trump's actions here against the Postal Service will affect the election. What is your assessment of her saying something like that? What's her basis for assuming that everything's going to be okay? There is no reason we should ever believe that with this administration, which issued umpty -um executive orders in 2017, which has had gross incompetence and failed leadership through this pandemic, and now these attacks on completely 
completely illegitimate attacks on voting by mail, why would you think that they aren't going to do everything in their power to interfere with our elections and to make sure Trump can hold on to power? Look, the Senate Intelligence Committee just issued the final report on interference in the 2016 elections by the Russians. And that report not only confirmed everything that we already knew that the Russians had interfered, it also confirmed for the first time in public that I remember that Putin ordered the direct attacks on the DNC emails. Don't underestimate what this administration will do, the lengths it will go to, to disrupt everything about these elections. And our Secretary of State wants to take the word of a local post office official that don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. That is not a plan. And that will not give us confidence that we can conduct the elections freely, fairly, safely, and securely. You know, here at the state level, we have seen pushback uh, against Trump, certainly from the governor, very much so from the attorney general. And I'm wondering generally how you see the role of secretary of state, ideally, in pushing back against the Trump administration. The reason we're calling on the secretary of state to put her full force of support behind our attorney general's lawsuit is that as chief elections officer, it is the duty of the office of secretary of state to ensure that we are fulfilling our constitutional responsibility to give people the right to vote. So voter suppression, voter purging of voter rolls, this kind of interference in the postal service, when our state passed the law in the state legislature to allow statewide vote by mail, it is a direct attack on our ability to fulfill our duty to our people. The chief elections officer of our state should be standing up for the people. And that's why you have to fight back against Trump, because he is not supporting the rights of the people. Well, I think everybody listening can see why we should get you into the job. What do you think that people should be doing in response to the situation right now? Everyone should commit to ensuring we are protecting every vote and every voter, regardless of party. This is an intentional attack on our right to vote. And the people their rights are at risk, all of the people. There are all kinds of candidates on these ballots all over the state in this election. We have ballot measures and we have candidates up for office. Every single one of the people who are voting want to know that their vote is gonna be counted and that they want it to be counted as they cast it, whomever they count it for. And so what I want is for the people to work with their post office, their local post office. I want the people to call their auditor and find out where their ballot boxes are located. Go online, it's all online. I, I want the people to know that if they vote early, as soon as they get their ballot, they are increasing the likelihood that their ballot will be counted and it will be counted properly. I also want everyone to thank their postal worker. You know, we have to remember that these things that come from the top, directing people to undermine the confidence of the voters and whether their mail is gonna be handled properly. Remember that the postal workers are trying their best to do their job. They have had, they have had insane work hours through this pandemic. So thank your postal worker. And if you hear of any dismantling of equipment, if you hear of any situation where people are having ballot boxes removed, tell the auditor in your county, tell your state representative, tell your member of Congress, tell all three of us, local, state, federal, we all need to know what is going on so that we can address the risk when it's happening. And I think if we, the people, decide we're going to make sure this election happens, Stefan, we can do this because it is not, it is not in the power of Trump. It's in the power of us. And this is our chance to sh say, we're going to have our elections and we're going to make sure every one of our neighbors has a chance to 
exercise their right to vote. I'm going to make sure that that list that you just laid out of action steps is available for all listeners in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for leading the charge on this and and showing leadership uh, at a time when we absolutely need it. Uh, Representative Gail Tarleton, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you all. So just to recap Representative Tarleton's calls to action, number one, contact your county auditor and find out where a ballot box is near you. Go to www.sos.wa.gov. Number two, vote early. Number three, thank a postal worker for all the work they're doing. And number four, if you hear of any dismantling of equipment, contact your county auditor, your member of Congress, and your state representatives and your senator. I also want to briefly mention the Day of Action plan for this Saturday, August 22nd. Indivisible is a partner in this, along with Move On, the NAACP, and many others. The plan is to show up to your local post office at 11 a.m. local time to save the Postal Service from Donald Trump and declare that Postmaster General Louis DeJoy must resign. Go to savethepostoffice.net to find a location near you, and please do be safe out there. Also, and this is from National Indivisible, if you text USPS to 9779, they will send you a script to call your representatives. You can also sign up to talk to voters via phone or text at 2020.indivisible.org. This is part of Windivisible. And then be ready to do whatever it takes to make sure that we protect the results on election night. Go to protecttheresults.com to be ready to take action. Okay, on with the show. Recently, the most frequent question that I've been getting asked by listeners is, I want to help with a state or legislative race, uh, but I have limited time. I have limited resources. What races should I focus on? I have two people who I think can help answer that question. First, of course, is Will Casey. He's communications director with the Washington State Democrats. Hello, Will. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, my brother. And Cap Pipkin, who is on the steering committee for Indivisible Eastside, as well as the Washington Indivisible Network. And I should mention, she is one of my partners in the town hall series that we've been doing with state and local candidates. Hello, Cat. Hello. So glad to be here. This is so much fun. So we will talk all about the election. But first, Will, I have to say... Great work on Washington's roll call for the Democratic National Convention. We got to see uh, 41st LD Rep. Meelan Tai. Uh, this was a huge deal. And you directed this, right? Yeah, I mean, I had a small role in it. I, all I did was sort of point the camera. Uh, Mylan Tai, she was just excellent. She was a joy to work with. Um, you know, she was a champ throughout of it. And and uh, especially considering it was a, we had a heat wave here in Seattle on, on that Sunday. And it was, uh, I don't know, 97 degrees by the time we started shooting. So... Um, it was it was incredible to, to be a part of that. Yeah. You know, as a, as a member of the 41st, I want to thank you especially for that because you made her look so great. Absolutely. She's so and we just really appreciate that you did that. Yeah, it was not hard. It was not hard. We've got a viewer saying it was awesome. I completely agree. It was part of history. And honestly, I will just say, I hope they do the roll call that way uh, every year. It was just spectacular. Something else, quickly, before we move on to the state races, we, of course, have been hearing about Claims of birtherism, again, from the Trump administration, this time with Kamala Harris. But, Will, you just alerted me to the fact that this now apparently has come to Washington state. What can you tell us about this? Yeah. So uh, we at the state party just uh, wrapped a press conference earlier today. You can find it on our Facebook page uh, at uh, Facebook.com slash Wash Dems um, and check out our, our former live videos. Um, there's a Thurston County commissioner candidate, uh, Carolina Mejia. Uh, who is a naturalized American citizen. Let's get that out um, right at the beginning, right? We want to correct the, the record here. There's a, a local Republican operative who's been spreading her information around um, online down in that area. Uh, apparently, he was associated with the Republican candidate that didn't get through the primary and, you know, just couldn't handle the loss. Um, and so part of that has been filing numerous uh, challenges and, and making threats against uh, Carolina saying that she's, you know, going to face prosecution if she doesn't drop out of the race because of this alleged, you know, uh, misinformation about her citizenship. When in fact, you know, she's a naturalized citizen. She came here when she was 11 years old. She's as American as any of us on this uh, panel are. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's it's just unfortunate that that's uh, the way that the Republicans seem to be doing their politics these days. But um, you know, when this stuff crops up, we uh, we got to come down on it swift and and with uh, overwhelming force. So. Hopefully, uh, if, if anyone you know who's listening wants to support her campaign, I'd urge you to go check it out at uh, CarolinaForThurston.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-I-N-A 
fortthurston.com. Okay, cool. And I'll have that in show notes for everybody. Thank you for calling uh, attention to that. And that's something that we'll definitely keep an eye on. So let's go ahead and talk about the 2020 election. We know what the stakes are at the national level, uh, in large part because we've been seeing it play out every night at the DNC. So I want to talk about the state level. And I think a good place to start is big picture. What is to be gained if Democrats win in in Washington this year? And what do we lose if we don't? Kat, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd say that the stakes this year just simply couldn't be higher, both at the state as well as the federal level. I mean, we're in a time of crisis nationally. The fate of our democracy is on the line, right? Um, is arguably at least on the line. At the state level, we're facing an economic crisis coming out of a pandemic. And state government is really where the rubber meets the road. That is where your elected officials are intimately, daily affecting every single person's life. Uh, It's where our values are immediately and tangibly expressed. It's where federal money gets, where they make decisions about where we're spending federal money. So I think what's at stake here is whether we want a state government that perpetuates an upside down tax code in which literally is the most progressive in the country. We're, we're literally number 50 in the country on this, where the poorest Washingtonians pay the highest overall share of their income in taxes. So we have to ask ourselves, what are our values? Do we want the poor and marginalized communities to suffer the most in an all budget cut session? Or a state government that prioritizes people and that makes the hard choices that would make that possible. Yep, agreed uh, with all of that all across the board. Will, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think there's also just something more fundamental. I mean, obviously the policy implications are huge, um, but I think you know everyone at the federal level understands that this election is a referendum sort of on the soul of this country. It's what you're hearing Joe Biden making an argument about and, and every Democrat that's spoken to the DNC. Um, but I think that you know what folks might not be aware of is that that's basically what the Republican Party has become from, you know, from the top down to the lowest levels, right? Like uh, this birtherism attack that you brought up, thank you, Stefan, by the way, for, for giving us some space to talk about that, you know, is a symptom of the fact that, you know, Republicans across the state think that that's an acceptable way to conduct themselves, you know, in the political arena. And we just have to send an overwhelming message that that's not what we're willing to tolerate, right? And uh, I think that, you know, you've seen some uh, Republican officials try to cast themselves as moderates, that they are, you know, oh, I'm just trying to, you know, find a middle course here. But at this point, anyone who's still applying that label to, to themselves, honestly, uh, I have no no patience for them. Um, and I don't think anyone who's listening should either, because, um, you know, you've got Lauren Culp as a, a gubernatorial candidate who's around, you know, spreading coronavirus across the state with these rallies um, that, you know, he claims masks are optional when we know that they are necessary for the, the vast majority of us to contain this virus. Um, and down at the state legislative level, you've got candidates, uh, you know, like in the 25th LD, for example, doorbelling without masks. And, you know, to a, a, a random person on the street that might seem less uh, extreme than holding a huge campaign rally, but it, it's the same anti-science rhetoric that we've got to root out, um, you know, at the core of the Republican Party here. So, Yeah, man. I mean, if there were ever a year to vote a straight blue ticket, this is it. Uh, and I, like you said, I don't think we need to encourage people who are listening to this program to do that. Uh, let's do talk about some of the specific races right now, because things have been certified at the county level. But here's what we know right now. And I'm going to divide our discussion into good news and challenges, I think is the way to put the other bucket. Uh, so the good news is Governor Inslee came out ahead with uh, over 50 percent of the vote. So that's that's very solid. Uh, A.G. Bob Ferguson, Public Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz, Insurance Commissioner Mike Kreidler all led their races by at least 7 percent. Uh, treasurer candidate Mike Pellicciotti got 53 percent above incumbent Dwayne Davidson. So that is a huge flip opportunity there uh, at the state level. And I think another big story was how well black women candidates did overall. Uh, As Justice Raquel Montoya Lewis said at our town hall on Tuesday, representation matters. So that's the good news. Let's talk about some of the challenges here. So We'll start with Secretary of State. So we just spoke with uh, 36LD Representative Gail Tarleton, uh, who just joined us and made an incredibly strong case about why she should be in office in terms of her response to what has been going on with the Postal Service. She, of course, is challenging incumbent Kim Wyman. I should note that this is a seat that Democrats have not held in 60 years. So this is a push. Tarleton got 43% in the primary, but there seems to be a little bit of room to move. 
Talk about the importance of flipping this seat to you, Kat. Well, this is one of those races that I would look at in terms of its long-term potential in terms of gains or outcomes for the state. So my primary argument here is that investing in Tarleton's race for Secretary of State is actually an investment in protecting and maintaining a Democratic majority in the state of Washington. If you care about that, you care desperately about who is running elections. Secretary of State does a lot more than just elections, but it's really important for people not to buy into the false narrative of, oh, but we need balance in state government. No, no. When it comes to voting in this political climate, what we don't need is balance. We have a great system here because our legislature has ensured that, not because our existing Secretary of State has done that. We have a great system in spite of our current Secretary of State. What we could have with a Democratic Secretary of State is is making voting easy and accessible for everybody, which it is not today. Yeah. Boy, I, and we hear specifically from the Seattle Times uh, editorial board all about balance all the time. That is not the argument to be made no. this year, no. in, in my opinion. Will, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it's something that uh, voters are really getting to a, a little bit of an education on uh, this year is really the importance of voting rights, right? I mean, I think you've seen it consistently throughout the DNC messaging this week. Every speaker has talked in some respect about making a plan to vote and making sure that, you know, everyone that you know also has a plan to vote. Uh, and I think that in the Trump era, we've really seen elected officials, you know, um, sort of succeed or fail based on their ability to be creative and, you know, com- combat this sort of attack on our institutions, right? Uh, And so, you know, we've already seen confirmed reporting that, you know, the USPS, uh, despite making an announcement that says, oh, we're going to suspend any further changes, um, have not confirmed that they're going to reverse the sabotage that's already happened. Right. In fact, I will jump in and say he's confirmed that he won't. Yeah, exactly. Okay, even better. So you're a little bit more up on the story than I am. Um, So I think that that's a very important factor. And the kind of press conference that Representative Tarleton put on um, earlier this week is a perfect example of the kind of, you know, creative and active leadership that we need defending our right to vote. Um, because, you know, as we're we're doing this work on the state level, we can't make any guarantees about what's going to happen to the rest of the country at the presidential level, right? And God forbid, if we end up with another four years of Trump, we need someone in the Secretary of State's office who is going to fight tooth and nail to make sure every single vote is protected and every single voter makes their voice heard. Couldn't agree more. We talked about that very thing about how we have definitely a lot of pushback from the governor. We've had a ton of pushback from the AG, and we need that kind of pushback from Secretary of State if, you know, God forbid, as you say, we have another four years of Trump. Let's talk next about Superintendent of Public Instruction. So Chris Reichdahl is the incumbent. He is running a much closer race than I think many of us are comfortable with. He did get 40% overall in the primary in a field of six candidates. So there's there's some room there. But his second place challenger, Maya Espinosa, is looking very competitive. Kat, you had some thoughts about this race. And particularly, you said that you thought that it was uniquely vulnerable to disinformation. So unpack that. T- tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. So remember, this is a nonpartisan race in theory. Um, so we, you know, when we look at the numbers, we have to look at candidates declared value statements in terms of evaluating who they are and what kind of a superintendent of public instruction we would be. So it's actually pretty easy to do here. So let's take a look at Reichdahl. He's facing a conservative, a failed legislative candidate whose campaign was notable for its smear tactics and who has, uh, well, we'll get into that. Um, a disbarred lawyer, anti-vaxxer, uh, someone who feels we shouldn't have closed schools during a global pandemic. And then lastly, someone who wants to introduce religion into our schools. Those are the people who are opposing our current superintendent of education. His opponent in November, whose name you mentioned previously, has garnered attention here recently by, by literally submitting and printing false and inflammatory inflammatory voter pamphlet statements that are uh, attacking Reichdahl. They're outrageous. Once again, I just want to point out who controls voter pamphlets. That That leads back to our first uh, line. So here's an example of somebody who said, gosh, I didn't read that. Really? Because it's your office that approves those statements. So tell me how that statement made it into a voter's pamphlet when it's an out and out lie and it's demonstrable in the course of actually ruled that it was a lie. 
Um, so these are all these anti-vaccine religion in schools, the whole concept of sex education. Uh, all of these things are polarizing. They're emotional. Um, it doesn't matter that you can opt out of the age-appropriate sex education classes. They're really subject to lots of misinformation. And you know that they are based on the fact that R90 was able to actually get enough signatures to get on the ballot. It's so confusing. They made it so twisted that we now actually have to declare on the ballot, yes, we agree with the priorities that our legislators have set. So I think that this is one of those examples of a campaign where you've already seen it, right even in the voter's pamphlet, you're seeing the kind of misinformation that is that people are going to be going hard after him on. We, I will give listeners and viewers a heads up. We are going to be talking with a representative from R90 on the 3rd of September. Mark your calendars for that because everything that Kat just talked about is stuff we're absolutely going to be covering. Um, we'll shift to you and talk about the lieutenant governor's race. Michael Goldberg of Washington Wire wrote a piece about the lieutenant governor's race that kind of <laughs> chilled me a little bit. He said that even though it is a two-Democrat race between Denny Heck and Marco Elias, that the GOP could potentially win with a coordinated write-in campaign. And Goldberg cited Murkowski as an example of a time that this worked. How likely is this? Well, I mean, it's one of those things that I revert back to, uh, you know, the, my favorite saying for uh, these last four years uh, from Dan Pfeiffer, just, you know, worry about everything and panic about nothing, yep. right? Uh, so this is something that definitely worries me because the math is not uh, that hard, right? Like if, if a Republican can, uh, just for viewers who haven't read the, the Michael Goldberg article, his argument is basically, you know, if a Republican holds on to 40% of the vote, um, through a writing campaign, and then the Democrats uh, split the remaining 60, then obviously, you know, we could end up with an accidental Republican in office. Uh, the challenge with a writing campaign is that you need to have an extremely, extremely compelling candidate who folks are naturally energized about and want to support, right? Um, obviously, partisanship is a huge deal here. Um, and we've seen, you know, the Culp campaign, for example, build a uh, social media organizing infrastructure with the help of face, uh, Facebook's algorithms, I will add. This is not entirely their work or their genius. Um, this is the big tech companies failing to adequately regulate uh, misinformation in our politics, but that's a different discussion. Um, and I think that that's, but they do have that infrastructure in place to try and motivate people to line up behind a writing candidate. And you've got folks like Jason Rantz and Dory Monson who will, uh, you know, amplify that campaign. The challenge is, uh, and this is why I'm, I'm not panicked about this quite yet, is that, uh, you know, this would require the Republicans to actually organize themselves. <laughs> and, uh, and, and not to be too gleeful here, right? Because we, we've seen in 2016 what happens when we get too self-confident. Um, but uh, I do think it's important to recognize that Lauren Culp won against the Republican Governors Association's, you know, preferred candidate. He won against someone in Tim Eyman who has better name recognition than anybody else in the primary. Um, and he won largely by running against the Republican establishment as well. And so I think that what you've seen um, across basically every issue, um, going back to something as basic as condemning a domestic terrorist in the legislature, uh, that the Republican Party just is not united, right? They are a, they are a fractured coalition that is only held together by opposition to Democrats. Um, and that's and I think that that's going to present a problem for them. Is this a GOP in disarray story, Will? Can it be? Usually it's the Dems in disarray, a, right? If I could find an alliteration that conveyed the same message, I think I'd have a, 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 a much better salary. <laughs> Elephants amok? I don't know. We'll, we'll have yeah. to work on that. All right. So let's switch over and talk about some of the legislative races here. There are a bunch. So we'll just kind of tick through these relatively quickly. Uh, let's start with LD10. This is Skagit in Island County. So on the House side, Challenger Angie Hamla is the front runner uh, among Democrats for position one. Democrat incumbent Dave Paul is in first with 47 percent of the vote for position two. Thoughts here on how this bodes for November right now, Will? Uh, I mean, I think it's going to be close, right? This is one of the districts that we're going to be, you know, prioritizing very heavily um, on the coordinated campaign. We're going to be, you know, funneling phone calls in to try and mobilize every single Democrat uh, for all three of our candidates there, right, including the Senate candidate, uh, Helen Price Johnson, as well. Um, and, and I think that's a very, very winnable seat for Democrats. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, this organic energy on, on the Republican side is a challenge, right? Um, you know, we have seen lower propensity voters who are exactly the type of people that Trump was able to mobilize nationwide come out in the primary to support Lauren Culp and, 
it's going to be it's going to be a significant lift for us. Can you just briefly expand on that? We've heard about the low propensity Republican voters turning out in the primary. Why? I think it's because, uh, frankly, they bought the bill of goods that Lauren Culp was selling them. Right. I mean, we've all been through this pandemic. No one's having a good time here. Uh, no one is enjoying being stuck in their homes. No one is enjoying, you know, not being able to go into their offices or go to the, go to work um, or being worrying about how you're going to put food on the table. Right. It, it's a challenging time. Um, and instead of, you know, uh, coming together and trying to tackle this challenge as, as, a, as a country and a state united under a, you know, leadership that takes this problem seriously, um, you have Republicans like Donald Trump and Lauren Culp going around just telling people not to worry about it, that it's a hoax, that, you know, oh, this is all just liberals who are worried about, you know, something they're using this as a way to try and win an election when it couldn't be further from the truth, right? We've got more than 170,000 Americans dead and more than 5 million infected. We're the worst country in the world at dealing with this problem. Um, and it's entirely because we just can't get our politics to, to, to come together around this. Yeah. And I think I would add two additional dynamics there onto this. First of all, uh, as we've seen in the 25th, for example, Republicans are actually canvassing. They're going door to door, which is something the Democrats aren't doing. Right. right. So we haven't engaged to the degree that these um, super motivated Republicans have engaged already. That needs to be a wake up call for us. We had a great blue wave in 2018. To a certain extent, I think we just thought that that momentum would keep on going. But momentum doesn't keep the ball doesn't keep rolling by itself. Exactly. Right? So I think this is the wake up call we need to say, hey, folks, you know, we need to put our dancing shoes on here because there are people who are equally motivated on the other side. I 100 percent agree with all of that. And I do want to talk strategy toward the end. Um, I okay. want to loop back to our discussion about the legislative races for right now. But put sure. a pin in that because I really do want to get back to the strategy because I do think that we're at kind of a natural disadvantage right now. And I want to get both of your thoughts on that. But circling back to uh, the 10th legislative district, um, Helen Price Johnson, Kat, uh, is the Senate candidate. She is just behind the incumbent with 49 percent of the vote. This is neck and neck. Can you talk not just about what it'll mean to flip the Senate seat, but also what it potentially means to flip the entire uh, district, the legislative district blue, LD10. Yeah, so I think the 10th is actually one of those districts where you have an example of two bands of opportunities, right? You've got a super narrow, close, close race with Johnson. We had uh, Paul, who we need to defend. He flipped that seat last time. Now, if we can flip a second seat with Price Johnson, that just keeps that momentum going. And in fact, with Homla, we've got an opportunity of flipping all three seats, now flipping, maintaining all, all three seats, which means LD10 would go blue and it would stay blue because we've got everything momentum-wise on our side. So I think the 10th is really exciting. I, I think that that's an area where we could all spend a lot of energy and get a big payoff. Good. in terms of where we are in the state. Okay, so take notes there, gang. Uh, LD10, definitely one to put your time and energy in if you are so inclined. Will, your thoughts on LD17? This is Eastern Vancouver and Clark County. Tanisha Harris is at 46% uh, for representative position one. What does she need to do to hang on and win in November? I, I The 17th is, is close to my heart. I lived down there actually for a short period of time in, in 2018 when I was working on Carolyn Long's race. Uh, and I know we're going to get to her in a little while. Um, but I, Tanisha is just a fantastic candidate. If you've ever had a chance to meet with her or talk with her, her energy is just so infectious. Um, I mean, she's she just has such a, a, a vivacity to her um, that is just so compelling. And I, and she'd be an incredible advocate um, for the working families and children in, in that district. And we desperately need her in Olympia. I think, you know, Tanisha is a very committed campaigner. Um, you know, she does the work. She's, you know, doing everything she can to connect with voters. But, um, you know, this does tie into that strategy conversation, right? Like, we're not going to tell our candidates to go out there and, and risk exposure or, you know, risk infecting their neighbors. And so we just need folks to to really plug in and just help us amp up the volume. We made over 818,000 phone calls in the primary. And that's and that's what it took to get us to where we were in the primary. And nobody's happy with that. Right. So that means we need to do even more for the next, you know, 75 days. And so, you know, if, if folks want to visit our website, you know, wa-democrats.org, there's plenty of ways to volunteer. You can also volunteer directly with Tanisha's campaign. I know she's also making phone calls and doing, if you are down in Southwest Washington, uh, I know they're doing no contact uh, lit drops, or at least they were in the primary. Um, very different from canvassing. You don't ring the doorbell. You don't interact with the voter at all. You're masked, you're gloved. 
um, you know, everything is, is safe and, and following protocols for public health. Um, but yeah, we definitely could use um, a lot of help down there in, in the 17th LD in the Senate race as well. Kat, you had some thoughts about uh, how Opportunity Pack could play a role in this in the in the 17th with Tanisha Harris. Yeah, I mean, she's down. If you look at total vote and tell count, us, uh, by the way, just tell tell listeners what Opportunity Pack is. So the Opportunity Pack is a new pack uh, devoted specifically to elect a slate of black female candidates in the state of Washington. In fact, we've got nine black women running in the state of Washington. In terms of in terms of representation, you, you have no idea how impactful that is. Do you realize that there's not even a single black woman candidate running in the entire state of California this year? Not one. We've got nine. Think about the sea change that makes in terms of representation at the state level. So, uh, you know, when you're down over 6%, something extraordinary has to happen to change the dynamic of the race. And as Will is saying, now's where we've got to put our uh, the pedal to the metal. I think a surge of opportunity pack dollars could really help narrow that gap so that our efforts then would be multiplied and amplified. agreed. Yeah. And, you know, something that I will mention is the town halls that you and I have done, uh, Mm -hmm. you can go and listen to a lot of these candidates in these town halls. And I will have a list of all of those town halls for listeners at IndivisiblePodcast.org in the show notes. And I really encourage people to get to know some of these candidates. They are tremendous. Uh, Let's talk about LD26. So this is Bremerton Gig Harbor. Carrie Hesch in position one has 40% of the vote. She is in second place overall, but the total Democratic share is higher than the total Republican share. I assume we see this as good news, Kat? Yeah, absolutely. This is another one of those districts where we see momentum on our side, right? So two years ago, that district was represented by three Republicans. Then Emily Randall took the Senate seat. Now, this year, it looks like at a minimum, we ought to be able to get Carrie Hesch over, over the over the finish line. So we take a second seat. Even if we can't get Joy over that finish line, we're super well positioned to keep that momentum going. Well, you mentioned Joy Stanford. Yeah, she's at 42%, but that is behind the combined combined percentage of the two GOP challengers. So she has a little bit of more of an uphill climb there, right? She does. She does. But again, we've got momentum on our side in that district, just like up in the 10th. So I think that we're going to get there. We'll get there at least with one more candidate this year. Hopefully we'll get that third seat as well. Let's talk, Will, about LD28. This is Pierce County, uh, Lakewood, parts of Tacoma. Uh, Senate Senate candidate Twana Nobles is ahead of Republican Steve Oban by one point. And I will point out that if Twana Nobles is elected, she would be the first, not first, uh, the only black woman in the Senate. She would be the only black member of the Senate right now. So uh, your thoughts on this race, how can Twana hold on through November? Well, I, I, first of all, if any of your listeners have not uh, watched Twana speak, it is you are missing out. Yep. Uh, yeah. He is an incredible human being, an incredible community servant. Um, you know, she's the CEO of the Urban League down in Tacoma. Uh, she's been deeply, deeply embedded in that community for a very long time, um, and is just uh, the passion with which she speaks is is, is just. Uh, breathtaking, honestly. Um, and I think that all she's got to do is continue the work that she's doing. I mean, she's getting a fantastic amount of support. You know, we have been behind her 100%. I know the Senate caucus is working really hard on her behalf. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks are, are, are pulling for her down there. But we've already seen that that race is going to, it's, it's gotten ugly and it's going to get uglier, right? Um, you know, the I know we've talked about this, Stefan, on, on a prior episode of your show, but I, I think it bears repeating that, you know, a, a PAC that was supported and funded by, you know, Senate Republican leadership um, thankfully, they're in the minority, but still uh, leadership in the Senate. Um, unfor- it, they darkened her face in an attempt to scare voters against voting yeah. for her, which is just um, I mean, it's something you'd expect out of the 1950s. Right. Like this is this is um, unacceptable behavior. And to her credit, you know, Twana has stayed above the fray. Um, you know, she is is just, you know, letting it sort of roll off her back. There's an, uh, an interview she did with KUOW yesterday. If you haven't read it, it, it she's, you know, incredibly, um, you know, uh, just powerful in speaking about how, you know, she's not letting this keep her down. So I think that that's something that, you know, as long as she maintains that uh, spirit and we're all here to support her and make calls to, you know, to turn out Democrats on the 28th, um, you know, I'm confident we can get her get her across the finish line. I also want to get your thoughts on LD30. This is South King County. This is 
pretty generally good news overall. So Jamila Taylor is on top in position one with 43 percent, which combined with the other Democrat potentially gets her to 54 percent. Fingers crossed on that. Jesse Johnson in position two got 58.2 percent of total ballots. What are your thoughts on these two races? Um, I mean, if you, again, if you haven't heard Jesse Johnson speak, Oh, man. Oh, yeah, we like, did a town hall I, with him as well, and I cannot right. encourage people to, to people check need that to out. listen more. to that town hall. It yeah. is so inspirational. They're amazing. Yes, yes. You should definitely go back and listen to him. He spoke for our GOTV tour and got volunteers fired up in a way that I haven't seen, you know, since we've had to move to virtual organizing. So, um, I mean, he's just and not only is he an inspirational speaker, he's got tons of incredible policy ideas as well. Right. Um, I mean, he was appointed to that seat originally. This is the first time he's standing for election um, for that position. And, you know, he's already gotten to work in Olympia um, and I believe, you know, had several bills of his that were made up through committee and, you know, has a lot of uh, achievements to speak for, um, you know, his service in, in Olympia. And I think, you know, the 30th LD is one of those districts where, you know, five, 10 years ago, it might have been competitive for Republicans. But, you know, this geographic realignment we're seeing and, and you know, the the diversification of the suburbs is really going to make that a, a pretty safe seat going forward. If my memory serves, he introduced and passed four bills in his first term, which is just yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Incredibly productive member yeah. of the legislature. Cat. Let's talk about LD42. This is Whatcom County. So Representative Sharon Shoemake is protecting her seat there. She got 49.4% in position two. Alicia Rule could flip her seat with 48% in position one. This is a nail biter, right? So talk about the importance not only of this race, but also of this district, what it would mean to flip this district for Dems. Yeah, so I think that we need to take a step back and look at Alicia's race and look at who she's running against. So Senator Erickson won his race by one half of one point last time. Super tight race, right? This guy was the guy that was handpicked by Donald Trump to run the EPA. And this guy's fingerprints are all over every rollback of every environmental protection that we've seen in the last three and a half years. If you value your environment, if you believe in climate change, if you think that we need to do things a little bit differently, you have to commit yourself to getting this guy out of office. Yep. Absolutely. So I think that we absolutely need to bring Alicia up and over that finish line. She's an amazing candidate. We did a town hall with them just a week or so ago. Uh, and then Sharon Schumach, again, she's down by one point, 1.2 points. So that's tiny. That's something that even that district, even just people committing themselves up in the 42nd should be able to get us over the over the end on that. Super important for us as a state, though, I think, to make the value statement to get the both of those people elected. Will, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to add something else, you know, because this does keep coming up throughout our conversation here. Um, you know, this is yet another situation where having a Republican secretary of state is not helpful. Um, there was, you know, a very just odd um, sort of right wing conspiracy theory floating around Facebook um, during the primary about the Postal Workers Union doing something odd. It, it was not true. I'm not even going to repeat the substance of the allegation here because I don't want to help sort of amplify their argument. Yeah. But Kim Wyman had no problem amplifying their argument. She issued a statement uh, from her office, like not even a campaign uh, statement, something from the Secretary of State's office calling for an investigation from the Department of Homeland Security, as well as the, uh, you know, the, the Postal Service inspectors who just arrested um, uh, Steve Bannon, Steve, or, yeah, Steve Bannon uh, nationally uh, yesterday. And so um, I think that that's, you know, just this, this race is yet another example of like, it, it really does matter how elected officials choose to use their position and use their power. So I think that, you know, sort of rejecting that um, sort of conspiracy theorizing and getting Alicia across the finish line is a very powerful statement to make as well. Here, here, well put. Let's vote for truth. Uh, yeah. And finally, Kat, you had a couple words briefly that you wanted to say about the 44th. And before you do, so this is Snohomish County. Uh, I will preface this by saying that we want to send best wishes to April Berg. She was involved in a pretty serious car accident with her husband. Uh, word is she is on the mend. So if you are watching slash, slash listening, April, uh, our, our best to you. So uh, Kat, what are your thoughts on this race? Well, I'd say that the the, the 44th is important for us, um, not just because of keeping up the momentum that we're keeping and moving um, our progressive majority here in the state, but I think we also have to take a look at who we elect within those categories. So we have currently up there April Berg running against Steve Hobbs, uh, who has twice voted to kill the clean fuel standards, um, which is 
it's, that's a Democratic priority, right? You can't have a Democrat voting against those sorts of things. So he's ahead of he's the head of Senate Transportation. He uh, has succumbed to pressure, perhaps, from the transportation lobby. Um, we have to flip that seat. I think this is a, another one of those areas where our values will shine through, and we need to perhaps elect a, a more progressive Democrat to that seat. Here, here to that. Okay, so we will uh, finish up here by talking about a couple of congressional races, and we'll start with Eighth District Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier. She is my congresswoman. We fought very hard to get her into that seat, and uh, she won her primary but with less than the sum total of her GOP rivals. Will, you're fairly optimistic on this. How do you see the dynamics of, of this race and winning for, for Dr. Schreier? Yeah, yeah. And so I think the I, I am optimistic for, for a very specific reason, but I, I want to make sure that um, before I get to my optimism, um, that I'm being, you know, very, very clear, we do need to keep doing the work, right? This yeah. is not something where we can just, you know, sit back and assume that because she's gotten across the bank line once, it's going to happen again. Yeah. Right? Hashtag do the um, work. Yes, yes, exactly. But I think that the, uh, the the reason for optimism here and, and to temper any sort of panic that people are feeling about the congressional is that, you know, Congresswoman Schreier is still relatively new to this district, right? This is only her first time running for re-election. Um, and, you know, she raised 15 times the amount of money of her closest Republican challenger and wisely, in my opinion, has, is saving those resources for the general election. Right. Um, she did not face a, a serious challenger um, from the Democratic side. She had no real reason to compete in the primary and and spend those resources before the general election when they could be most effective. Um, and I'm very confident that, you know, her team knows what they're doing there and they'll be able to execute a very smart, targeted communications plan um, that will you know get her across the finish line. As long as she has the volunteer support um, you know, that she had in 2018. Kat, your thoughts? You know, I think the only thing I'd add there is that um, we have another race in that area in the 5th LD where a lot of Democrats are really motivated to do a lot of work. And I would ask people in the 5th LD uh, where it overlaps with the 8th Congressional District. While they're working to get a more progressive Democrat in the state legislature, please make sure you also have a conversation about Dr. Kim Schreier. Good, good. Very, very smart. Okay. And we have a town hall with Dr. Kim Schreier coming up. Kat, you and I will give a billboard of upcoming town halls as we close out the show. I also want to talk about Carolyn Long down in the third. Will, this is a candidate that you worked for in 2018. Cooks had shifted this race uh, to likely Republican, I believe, away from like strong Republican. Ultimately, I think many thought and hope that Long would do better against Jamie Herrera Butler, who I think many people were hoping was going to be on her way out, was vulnerable. Are the, what are your thoughts on how to get Long kind of recharged here and get her up and over? Yeah, I think um, it's going to be a combination of, of things, right? It's going to be a bit of a, a kitchen sink approach, right? And I think that uh, I know you question, or Stephen, we're going to talk more specifically about strategy sort of later in the show, but I think it's hard to answer this question without talking about the overall. Well, let's let's jump off first. here. Let's use this as a jumping off point for strategy right. then. Great. So I think that, you know, while we can't doorbell, right, because we are, you know, following social distancing guidelines and trying to not spread the coronavirus, um, I think that there is more sort of that passive um, enthusiasm factor plays a larger role, right? Um, because, you know, folks on our side um, that are less likely to vote aren't people who are, you know, generally like, oh, you know, I'm very closely observing politics and I'm just not convinced that somebody's here. It's people who are, you know, working several jobs and don't have time to you know, follow up with the news or they move because, you know, they're renters or they're lower income or they're you know trying to find work. Um, and so therefore, they're not in the habit of going to the same polling place or you know, being in touch with the same politician, you know, year in and year out. And I think that on the Republican side, that's just not the same demographics. Right. Those voters are they're still on the older side. Um, they are more permanently, you know, sort of located. They're just disillusioned with the broader system, um, you know, as a whole. And because they had sort of a, a very important on their side of the aisle choice to make about, you know, which which one of these candidates is going to embarrass themselves against Jay, Jay Inslee in the general election, um, you know, that drove a lot of enthusiasm on the Republican side. And so I think, you know, um, there will be some natural deflation um, of that basis. You know, folks who got fired up for 
I can't believe I'm saying this, candidates like Tim Eyman or Joshua Fried, um, you know, are a little bit of a, of a sore loser or, you know, maybe don't come out in the general election because their person didn't make it through. Um, but, you know, we can't depend on that. Right. Um, and so I know Carolyn's going to have the resources she needs. If, if folks haven't, you know, checked out her campaign, um, electlong.com is, you know, where you can learn more about her story. Um, you know, I've worked for her personally, so obviously I'm far from far from objective in this uh, situation. But, you know, she was a joy to write for. Um, and I know her heart's in the right place. She cares deeply about her community. Um, and I think that, you know, um, they're going to have a, a smart campaign team down there who you know, I'm in touch with, you know, on a daily basis. Um, they're working their butts off and, you know, we just need folks to, uh, to to do the work, right? Like it's we're at a disadvantage here, right? Like it's that's it's the, the Blue Wave in twenty eighteen was driven by doorbelling, and you know we know that if we're going to re replicate the same number of voter contacts, we just have to completely amp up and, and double down um, our efforts on the phones. So. Okay. Well, where do you net out on this, Kat? You're a strategy-minded person. I I'm wondering how you kind of look at this particular problem of being at a disadvantage with the fact that uh, the GOP is basically shameless and is willing to go out and put all of their, you know, their, their, their volunteers at risk, and we simply will not do that. So we've got the phone at our disposal. What other avenues do you see? Well, see, here's the thing. We're really smart. Uh, so here's what we can do. We have created a map of all of the campaigns in the state, married with all of the indivisible groups in the state. And we've color coded the map according to possibilities of races. So we've got flippable red seats, flip, uh, protect blue seats that are closed. Then we've got purple areas where you have both D's and R's uh, elected. I'm an indivisible group, I'm in a town, I'm in a deep blue area. I don't really need to, let's say I'm on Vashon Island. I really don't need to be uh, campaigning for Pramila Jayapal or Joe Wen. They're both, you know, they're gonna get elected. Where can I spend my energy? All I have to do is look at the map and see a race that is of interest to me. Every single race, you click on it, takes you to a campaign sheet that tells you all about the campaign, what opportunities are out there. So. We have armies of people who are involved in the indivisible movement here in the state that are looking for where they, where is their time going to be most valuably spent? And they are listening right now. The, uh, the hello. people we are talking to right now. Yeah. Hello, we're glad you're here. When is this, because <laughs> I am so excited about this map, when is this going to be available for people and where? The map's actually live now, but we'll be pushing out a data refresh as soon as the state results of the primary are certified. So next week, uh, if you go to the, well, we'll have it in the show notes here. Obviously, mm -hmm. if you go to Wash Indivisible on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Wash Indivisible, we'll have links to the map there. It's all public information. There's no coordinating with campaigns going on. So you can find out, and you can also use it as a tool to find out about individual groups if you're shopping for a group, if you're an individual who's never had a group to work with. So I'd say that's one thing you can do. That's one super smart thing you can do. The other thing is I would challenge our campaigns to say, if you need help, you need to ask for it. We're not going to divine that you need help. Let us know, because we have people who are looking for where to put their time and energy. Um, we've got a number of really great things happening across the state, including a Postcards for Washington campaign that'll be postcarding out to campaigns all across the state. Again, these are all things you can do at home. Um, so all of those kinds of things will be linked through from the map. That is one of the great things about this audience. It is comprised not only of progressive volunteers, it is comprised of campaign operatives. It is also comprised of candidates. So you heard Kat. If you are in need of help, let us know because we can help broadcast that out far and wide. Uh, Will, I think you would like to end on talking about the coordinated campaign, correct, sir? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, as Kat is talking about, right, efficiency is the name of the game here, right, when we're trying to amp up our volume. So um, I think that there's the, the advantage of volunteering through the coordinated campaign is, you know, we are able to sort of, you know, centralize those resources. We've got a predictive dialer tool that means, you know, when we're able to get enough volunteers to run that on, on a consistent basis, you know, we make more calls with, uh, you know, a handful or less than two dozen organizers than Wisconsin's coordinated campaign is making with more than 100. Right. Um, we have, I think, the best field team in the country um, and our numbers bear that out. 
And so even if you've never volunteered before, if you've only done postcarding and you're a little bit, you know, antsy about getting on the phones, um, you know, that can be a great place to get a training. You can head to our website, uh, wa-democrats.org backslash organizing events um, and find our, our latest, um, you know, training that's available that we do every other weekend. Um, and, you know, we're helping out those targeted districts like the 25th, like the 28th, like the, the 10th, the 17th. You know, we're calling all over the state. Um, and, you know, the, the, the great part about volunteering the coordinated campaign is, you know, we do base Democratic voter turnout, right? That is our goal, right? Mm -hmm. Volunteering directly with the campaigns is great. They need that help. You've got to do some persuasion work as well. Um, but I think that if, especially if you're, you know, someone who's just sort of taking the plunge into doing direct voter contact on your volunteering, um, as opposed to doing, you know, postcarding or trying to share resources on social media, um, it can be nice to sort of be talking to a friendly audience, right? Um, and that's something that I think a lot of people, you know, enjoy. And, and you know, I, all I can say is uh, if you do, you know, sign up to volunteer with us, I'm not trying to make an argument you should do it exclusively, right? <laughs> Democrat on Democrat races, um, you know, that in, in Washington's top two primary system and, you know, definitely, you know, in those races, I'm not trying to pull you away from those campaigns. Um, far from it. But I do think that we do need the help um, because, you know, the more folks we have on our dialer, the more efficient we can get and the more calls we can make. And our friend uh, Tony Gates uh, from Indivisible Puyallup just piped in to say we need help in the 25th LD. So if anybody is in that area or if you're outside that area and you want to help, we are happy to put you in touch. So, uh, Kat, let's end here. As I mentioned, you and I have been doing a series of candidate town halls where you can learn more about a lot of these candidates that we have discussed all the way from the congressional down to the legislative. Um, and I, again, am going to have links at indivisiblepodcast.org for every candidate that we talked about here for people to, to check them out. Uh, we do have a couple town halls scheduled coming up with more to come. But what's on the docket right now? Uh, so first, can I give a shout out to Julie Arzajewski with Indivisible Please Tacoma? Do. She's a hero. Please. Yeah. Uh, Stefan, Julie, and myself are the ones who have been organizing these with Julie bearing the overwhelming burden of, of tracking down and getting people scheduled and wrangling everybody. Um, so we finally have some good, uh, so our schedule is a little bit firmer now for the end of the month and for next month. So next week on Thursday, not Tuesday. I know Tuesdays are always Town Hall Tuesdays, but... We like the alliteration is why. Yeah, but we're going to have to make an exception for Dr. Schreier on Thursday. We are, because we love Dr. Schreier. And she, you know, crazily enough, she's back in Washington at the end of this week. She's been called back to do her job. So (laughs) we'll graciously, you know, work with her schedule. Uh, So next Thursday, we have Dr. Schreier. Uh, in a special town hall with her. Then on September 1st, we've got a fantastic kind of a state candidate omnibus with Gail Tarleton, Chris Reichdahl, Marco Leas, and Mike Glicciotti. That's going to be a fabulous town hall. Um, let me just say, it's if I had one message I could give people when as we get closer to November, it would be not just make a plan to vote, but make, it, make a plan to vote the entire ballot. Yes. Yep. Uh, I cannot tell you how important it is for people to actually vote that whole ballot on these state races. Literally, we would have elected a Democratic uh, state treasurer last time had people simply filled out the whole ballot. Yep. yep okay. And instead, right. what we have is a Trump Republican, an openly Trump Republican in Washington state, who is, instead of going to state financial board meetings, is actually having meetings with his uh, biggest donors and investing our state's money, our state's money, my money, your money in their companies. So I don't want that. I want somebody who reflects my values. So please just vote the whole ballot. Uh, okay. September 1st, Tuesday, state candidate on the bus. Um, then on the 9th, we have, um, again, not a Tuesday, um, but to accommodate all of our state Senate candidates, we're going to be having a chance to visit with Julie Dore, Helen Price Johnson, and Ingrid Anderson again. And that's going to be a really exciting meeting. Then on September 15th, we've got Attorney General Bob Ferguson. And I'm thinking he's going to have some interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, we are working on putting together a really kind of what's the future of education in Washington State Town Hall. And I'm really looking forward to that because education looks really different this year than it ever has in the past. Um, we got a little bit of a pass last year because of the pandemic, 
Um, but now we really need to buckle down and figure out how to be effective at doing this, this distance education. If districts choose to do that, by the way, that's one of the pieces of disinformation is that the superintendent of public instruction is allowing or not allowing school districts to meet or not meet. No, that's a local decision. Don't believe anybody who tries to sell you the story that Chris Reichdahl is keeping your poor, innocent children out of school. Um, no, that's not what's happening. Um, the state superintendent of instruction has given has given guidelines for them to make decisions on, but that's that's a local decision. So uh, one last one I will I will um, promote here is on August thirtieth. We just booked a disinformation expert for a special disinformation town hall called Fighting Back Against Disinformation, and this will give us actual examples and tactics for fighting disinformation in this electoral campaign. So that would be something that I would hope people would find a, an hour to attend on a Sunday afternoon. Perfect. And all of that will be found at the Washington State Indivisible podcast community on Facebook. Uh, will you get the last word this week, man? Yeah, I, I just wanted to echo your, your call to action here, Kat. I mean, I think that this is a, an extremely uh, unusual campaign environment for, for sure, right? Like, I normally wouldn't be talking to you from my living room. Um, we'd be meeting in person somewhere to do this. Um, so I think that, you know, as you see those, those things on Facebook, right, uh, or, you know, any other sort of social media platform, it is not enough to just sort of like shake your head and walk away and move on with your life, right? Like this is where people are getting their information right now. And uh, we have seen that the social media companies are not gonna do their jobs. They're mm -hmm. not going to you know, enforce standards. Um, you know, Facebook is, a t is, is taking this sort of both sides approach where they're trying to avoid angering the president because, you know, Lord knows uh, what their motivations are for that. But, um, you know, at the Washington State Democratic Party, you know, we have been trying and fighting with Facebook to get around this uh, refusal they have to comply with our state, you know, campaign finance laws. They've suspended our account from advertising for, you know, over a month. They still don't have guidance. Um, and all the while, their algorithm is, hope, is helping, you know, candidates like Lauren Culp organize these massive rallies and, you know, grow their Facebook followings and their groups, um, you know, to tens of thousands strong. So, you know, we all have a duty in this election to make sure that our, you know, our family members, our friends, those people in our on our networks are getting accurate information that's helping them make informed decisions about their ballots. Um, and, you know, we can't be passive in any way in this election. You know, it is, as, as someone is commenting here, it's time for all hands on deck. Yes, that is Catherine Cleland. And thank you for that, Catherine. You gave us our perfect closing words on that. Will Casey, thank you so much, man. Thanks. It's a pleasure as always, Stefan. And Kat Pipkin, thank you. Thank you. And that will do it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Feisiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>